0: A desert planet with twin suns. Why do I sense we've picked up another pathetic life form? Use my knowledge. Much to learn, you still have. Welcome back to Twin Sun Talks, folks. I'm your host, Jonah Liu. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, today, what I'm going to be talking at y'all about is uh, the genius of Darth Sidious and A.K.A. Sheev Palpatine's master plan, uh, that he enacted over the span of several decades um, in order to become uh, emperor of the galaxy. So, without further ado, let's dive into arc trooper training. Gentlemen, who wants to be an arc trooper? I do Alrighty, so I'm gonna start out by kind of profiling uh, Darth Sidious himself. Um, for those of you who are a little less familiar, so Darth Sidious. Uh, also known as he's a senator-slash-chancellor-slash-Emperor Palpatine um, and he was a Sith during the Rule of Two era. Um, he was the apprentice of Darth Plagueis, the master of Darth Maul and Count slash darth Tyrannus, as well as Darth Vader and he um, essentially orchestrated a galactic conflict from both sides in order to capitalize on the unrest that it would cause and so a little bit of backstory on the rule of two era sith their essential ultimate goal was to rule the galaxy in order to bring complete and total order to everything but rather so in that way they really had a similar goal to the jedi except the jedi fundamentally didn't seek to rule the galaxy they simply um sought to bring peace to it and so the sith had a similar goal of essentially bringing order their idea of peace was order and that order only would come through subjugation of the galaxy's inhabitants under sith rule and so that was their ultimate goal and sidious's plan to achieve that is actually super super fascinating and it had a few key pillars that kind of um upheld it and it's super super interesting whenever you think about it and this is I don't know going into this I don't feel like it's going to be as in depth as maybe some other people's analysis of this might be but it might I might end up going on some tangents so I don't know how long this episode's going to be but I hope that y'all find this kind of thing interesting. So, Sidious's main goals, whenever he's elected Chancellor, in episode one, he starts out as a senator of Naboo and ends up uh, orchestrating the essential impeachment or removal of, from office of Chancellor Valorum, his predecessor, by manipulating uh, Padme or Padme Amidala into calling for Valorum's um, removal because he is unwilling to stand up to the Trade Federation who is blockading Naboo and enslaving the citizens of Naboo. And so Sidious doesn't directly do that himself, um, but he does pull the strings and place those seeds of doubt in uh, Queen Amidala's mind at the time. So um, Sidious's main plans were to capitalize on the unrest within the Republic and then exploit mistrust in the republic and utilize count dooku um for a his personal connection to yoda and to plant seeds of doubt about the jedi's viability and then ultimately design an army to fight alongside the jar the jedi only to ultimately betray them so let's start out with just the obvious so he orchestrates an entire galactic conflict surrounding world seceding from the Republic. This was the Separatist movement that became the Confederacy of Independent Systems. And of course, he was the uh, master of Count Dooku, who was kind of the ringleader for this Separatist movement. Now, Count Dooku was heavily opposed to um, the, the way the, the Republic functioned. He thought that it was corrupt and that it was ineffective, inefficient. And he was very vocal about that, which was not, like a lot of Jedi Masters were not a fan of, and ultimately he left the Jedi Order to rule his homeworld of Serena, which was not a part of the Republic. Um, And then whenever he and Sidious got into cahoots with each other, he rallied other worlds that were not content with the way that the Republic was being operated and essentially convinced them to secede from the Republic and join his separatist movement. And obviously, Sidious was manipulating this all from behind the scenes, even though he was the leader of the Republic, which these worlds were seceding from, um, and ultimately this culminated in the battle, the first battle of Geonosis. Whenever um, Obi Wan tracked the bounty hunter Jango Fett there, and all of the Jedi came to rescue. Um, well, okay, this is, this is a common misconception. A lot of people think that the Jedi, like they sent like, I think it was like 100, uh, uh, more over 100 Jedi went to the Geonosian arena, um, and they think, and a lot of people think that it was to rescue Obi-Wan, Anakin, and Padme, but it was actually, uh, ultimately, to assassinate Count Dooku. They were trying to kill him, and Mace Windu had this opportunity to do it, and he decided to not and that was something that rested heavy on him, and I've talked about that in my other episodes, but I digress. That conflict culminated in Yoda uh, coming with the Clone Army, which was designed by Count Dooku and Darth Sidious to have a linchpin option, which I talked about in my episode over the history of the Clone Army, which is the inhibitor chip, but... Um, The Jedi needed an army, and they got one. And they didn't really question it too heavily until far later into the Clone Wars, because the clones were good soldiers. And they arrived exactly when they needed them to, which was by design. And what's interesting about the conflict that is the Clone Wars is that it put the Jedi in a position where their entire philosophy is put at odds with their actions. Because they're supposed to be, like, as Mace Windu says in the movies, they are keepers of the peace, they are not soldiers. But they got turned into military generals because they were the only ones that were capable of essentially leading a war. And it's super, super interesting because you see them start to, you see the Anakins and Ahsokas and you see in the Nadar Vebs And all of these Jedi that essentially operated exclusively during wartime, and you see that they don't uphold the same philosophies as traditional Jedi, with Nadar being extremely vengeful, with Ahsoka and Anakin being very unorthodox because the situations that they were put in, um, it was a necessity for them to kind of improvise and to kind of sacrifice elements of the Jedi code in order to be effective and this happened across the board But those are just a couple examples of um, things that we see in the Clone Wars TV show but the important thing is it put the Jedi at odds with their inherent philosophies and so therefore almost internally crippled them because they weren't being internally consistent with themselves by leading a war But, and it is also interesting because you see by the end of the war, the Jedi are kind of being phased out, and you see people like Tarkin and Yularen starting to take over more and more, and that's almost like it's a foreshadowing of the transition to the Empire. But you see the military, especially in in the arc with Ahsoka being framed for the bombing of the Jedi Temple and the Clone Wars, that final arc of Season 5, you see the military bureaucracy starting to be a lot more prominent in the style of the um, military prison on Coruscant and all of that sort of... um, And the fact that the military police are so heavily involved in a Jedi affair, you see that they're compromised. And you see that their ideals have been compromised, especially in the aspect where... They essentially obliged Tarkin by expelling Ahsoka and handing her over to them, them being the military, police, and the government, rather than handling it internally like they probably would have traditionally. But I just think that that's rather interesting. And to my point earlier about utilizing Count Dooku, Count Dooku was the personal Padawan of Yoda, if you didn't know that, which is super, super interesting, because Yoda trained pretty much every youngling that was in the Jedi Temple, but he was actually the personal master to Dooku. And so whenever Dooku left the order, that was a huge personal blow to Yoda. And Sidious exploited that connection a lot. And you especially see that in Yoda's arc in uh, season six of the Clone Wars, those last three episodes, you see Sidious manipulating Yoda using his connection to Dooku. Which is super sad, but you also see how strong Yoda is in his ability to essentially compartmentalize his um, emotions and what is best for the Jedi Order, which is much as Sidious's surprise. But um, using Dooku also planted seeds of, of doubt about Jedi viability to lead the order because Dooku was a very well-known Jedi and it was also very well-known that he was no longer a Jedi. It wasn't necessarily well-known that he was a Sith but it was well-known that he had left the order and so to see him at the head of this uh, separatist anti-Republican movement kind of planted seeds in the heads of people being like, oh, maybe these Jedi aren't all that great and then that, it's just kind of, it's a domino effect after that and I will go over all of these other things in a little more detail, but he also, one super interesting thing that I think is something that I overlooked whenever I was doing my roadmap through the Clone Wars, is that the uh, Palpatine's ability to leverage his position as head of both sides in order to increase his available power. And this is on display the best in the Clovis arc of Season 6 of the Clone Wars whenever Rush Clove, it's, it's about the banks and Rush Clove is taking over the banking clan and he utilizes his connection to Dooku to act, to the detriment of the Separatist side in order to give full control of the banks to the Supreme Chancellor himself, the leader of the Republic, because ultimately the Separatists are meant to fail because the Republic is the framework for his empire he doesn't want the republic the the galaxy to be fragmented into these independent systems um, independent regimes of each other he wants ultimately to be for it to be reunified but the conflict itself is simply to promote unrest within the galaxy and uh, for to prompt the citizens of the galaxy to favor security over their own freedoms they just want to enter the conflict they don't care what cost it comes at so this is a war of it's not even a war of attrition it's a war of meticulous strategical advantages and so he is giving he is trying to put all of his eggs into one basket by essentially stealing eggs from other people it's super super sadistic and interesting, but if you don't if you don't know that it's it's kind of confusing if you for whatever reason you didn't know that Palpatine was Darth Sidious it would probably be confusing why Sidious is so happy that Palp- that the Chancellor is getting all of the banking clans um, all of the banking clans' powers after all of the the stuff on Mutalist goes down. But um, but that's just one example of him leveraging his position as leader of both sides to benefit himself in the long run, which is super, super interesting. And his ultimate goal was to shake public faith in the Jedi in order to eventually erase them from history without people really batting an eye. And he does this through the Clone Wars because the Clone Wars was widely disliked people hated the clone wars and just the continual destruction in turn this caused them to hate the jedi except for anakin skywalker anakin skywalker was hailed as a hero he was the poster boy of the jedi order and everybody knew anakin skywalker and everybody loved anakin skywalker but the jedi order as a whole was widely disliked and we see this once again in the ahsoka Um, Ahsoka's being framed arc is you see a bunch of protesters outside of the Jedi Temple essentially protesting the war. Um, And this kind of reflects people's sentiments here on Earth in real life with people um, protesting the Vietnam War and stuff like that. But the fact that um, Anakin is the poster boy is twofold. One it's to make sure that Anakin isn't discouraged from his role as a general, but it's also to boost his ego and plant those seeds of, oh, you're you're better than they're giving you credit for. And to give him that exposure and to kind of give him that nudge to like, oh, yeah, people love what you're doing. Keep doing this stuff that puts your ideology that you've been raised on at risk, um, which is, once again, very sadistic, but it's also kind of cool and on the topic of anakin one super interesting thing that he does is he tests anakin multiple times he's almost like he's grooming him and we see this where it's like we'll watch your career with great interest but he's establishing himself both as a father figure a figure that anakin can trust and confide in but also he's testing him as they go to see if he's ready and obviously he's tested we see in revenge of the sith whenever he fights dooku and that's the final test that's when palpatine says like oh yes you're ready but he does this multiple other well it's inferred that he's done this multiple other times there's really only one other time that we actually see this but it's at the very end of the obi-wan undercover arc whenever he fights dooku on boo and this is This is a super interesting thing because it's something that almost every time i watch this arc it's when obi-wan goes undercover with a group of bounty hunters in order to stop an assassination attempt on the chancellor on naboo but it's super super interesting because every time we watch it i forget that this happens at the very end but dooku intercepts palpatine and anakin in a banquet hall and fights anakin um and this was the plan all along. This was Dooku's plan all along, Sidious's plan all along, was to get both of them alone and to, for the Jedi and the Republic to think that the assassination attempt had been foiled. But no, Dooku was going to lure them into a false sense of security and then intercept them whenever they were least expecting it. And this is, you see Palpatine, Watching them very keenly and he ultimately makes the realization that he is not ready Anakin is not ready to be his apprentice yet because he's not quite strong enough to defeat Dooku on his own And he's not willing to give in completely to his anger and you even You even hear, like, Dooku even taunts him about it, essentially. He says that, well done, Master Kenobi, you're a worthy adversary. I wish I could say the same for your young apprentice. And I'm sure that that stuck with Anakin really hard. And then hence the whole line where it's, my powers have doubled since the last time we met Count. Um, Line. He has very much a chip on his shoulder whenever he's fighting Dooku. And Palpatine is always watching very keenly to see how he's doing and whether or not he's ready. But obviously, Dooku was just a means to an end. Palpatine never, never intended for him to rule alongside of him um, once the Empire came to fruition because he felt that Dooku was too old and also felt that he wasn't powerful enough. And so Anakin was always his number one choice, and he was always going to phase out Dooku. Dooku was a means to an end. He was kind of a a rebound after Darth Maul, and was kind of like an in-between, it was almost like being in-between jobs, like he was in-between apprentices, and he just needed something to fill the void, something to pay the bills, and he chose Dooku because he was influential, and for all the reasons that I talked about before, where it would shake faith in the jedi and it would hit hit very close to home for a lot of the high-ranking jedi at the time because they knew duke very personally and so the last or not the last thing that i want to talk about but the battle of coruscant is such a huge part of this and i'm realizing i'm looking at the time now and this is going to end up being a longer episode because i've gone off on a few tangents like i said it would so i hope that y'all are enjoying this um, but the Battle of Coruscant has so much significance, and the Battle of Coruscant is the very first uh, thing that we see in Revenge of the Sith with all of the the giant cruisers uh, in a giant um, space fight, a space battle above Coruscant whenever Chancellor Palpatine has gotten captured by General Grievous. And the reason that it is so huge is that a cast doubts on the jedi's ability to maintain security because they were unable to prevent this attack on the capital world of course on they were unable to protect the supreme chancellor the most important person in galactic politics um because jedi were set to protect him and jedi failed to protect him it also put anakin in a position to go against the code whenever he was Pinned up against Dooku, and Dooku, I'm sure... I'm not entirely sure if this is confirmed in canon, but was told to essentially single out Anakin. Take out Obi-Wan early, single out Anakin. And so he was put in a position to kill an unarmed man. And he did. It was also, in turn, an opportunity to get rid of Dooku. Pretty seamlessly. um, Which... Like I said, he never intended to keep Dooku. Dooku was a means to an end. And then, and most importantly, and I've already touched on this a bit, it was meant to put the people of the Republic in such a state of fear that they were willing to sacrifice freedom for security. Because Coruscant hadn't been attacked, save the one bombing in that we see in the Clone Wars, in centuries. And so for the Separatists to be able to get such a huge army of such huge fleet to Coruscant without the Republic knowing and how did they get there? They got there with, uh, with uh, hyperspace routes provided by Chancellor Palpatine obviously but um, essentially the mindset was oh my gosh they got here the Jedi weren't able to protect us we need something to protect us better and What better to do that than a totalitarian regime that oppressed everybody to the point where a rebellion was not feasible, except people found a way. And then finally, obviously he exploited Anakin Skywalker's emotional instability to turn him against the Jedi slowly. And we see that once again with the Obi-Wan undercover arc. He kind of plants the seeds of like, oh, the Jedi obviously didn't trust you enough. And, like, like, I would have put you in charge, but the Jedi obviously didn't think that you could handle that responsibility. And then, I, once again, whenever he was denied the rank of master, whenever he was put on the council as the Chancellor's advisor, that was kind of a, a gut punch. And one more thing about the rank of master, which is an interesting thing, is that I read in my one of my source books, the Star Wars book, that the rank of uh, master is defined by a knight who has trained a Padawan to knighthood. So that's another really tough thing, is that Anakin almost trained Ahsoka to knighthood. That she almost, she was that close to becoming a knight and then she left the order. So he wasn't granted the rank of master because of that. And so i that that just adds a whole other layer to his frustration at not being given the rank of master even though he had a seat on the council but palpatine really acts like almost like a predator here where he essentially weans anakin out he isolates him when he's vulnerable and then he nabs him and the jedi didn't see it coming the jedi essentially the, the the chance Palpatine was able to validate all the things that the Jedi dismissed about Anakin, all of his worries about emotional attachment, all of the things about his mother. The Jedi essentially said, "Deal with it. You're not supposed to be feeling these things because those things are bad." The Chancellor said, "Well, these things make you special. These things are valid." And then of course, ultimately, he plays off his fear about losing the people that he cares about in this sense. It was Padme. And he gave him these empty promises of being able to retain life after death, being able to keep the people that he cares about from dying. And that was enough for Anakin. That fear of losing the person that he loved the most after losing his mother and not being unable to save his mother he wasn't going to let that happen again and he was going to do whatever he needed to do to make that happen and ultimately it was the Jedi's unwillingness to meet him where he was that made him that drove him to the dark side and They played right into Palpatine's hands. And the last step was Order 66, where the army that Dooku and Palpatine orchestrated for the Jedi turned on them. The inhibitor ships were activated and the Jedi were almost wiped from existence. And because the galaxy had such a distaste for them at this point, They were hardly remembered. And the crazy thing is, he made it look like they were the bad guys. He was able to justify his extermination of the Jedi Order because of Mace Windu's actions and because Mace Windu came to assassinate him, arrest him at first, but then turn to assassination and he was able to play it off as the jedi tried to take over the jedi tried to kill democracy and forcefully take over the republic and i stopped it i put an end to this jedi uprising and then he was hailed as a hero he was able to make the jedi fall so far from what they were trying to uphold, that he was able to ma- paint them as the villains and unify the galaxy under his dicta- dictatorial totalitarian regime without anyone raising so much as a finger, save a few select systems such as Saw Gerrera, Bail Organa, all those people that we no, but for the most part, it was a widely accepted thing. The Empire was going to bring order. And I don't know. I think that it's a really fascinating thing. And I think that when you really sit and think about it, it's like, wow. It's not even like the Joker's plan in The Dark Knight, where it's like, okay, a lot of things had to go right for that to pan out now, this this was a very well thought out and well executed plan that he did seamlessly so that's all that i have to say about that i really hope that y'all enjoyed this it was kind of more of a rambling episode but this is a super interesting topic that i really hope that y'all found interesting and yeah that being said this wouldn't be a proper episode if i didn't leave y'all with a little bit more Alright, staying on theme with my Palpatine stuff, whenever um, Order 66 had happened and whenever he was kind of uh, in the process of starting his Imperial regime, he actually converted the Jedi Temple on Coruscant into a palace and kind of a shrine to his victory over the Sith's um, eternal enemies, which I think is really sadistic and really cool at the same time to kind of have this memento of his triumph over the Jedi and what a spit in the face that is to have like essentially just this, this palace to essentially celebrate his grandeur in the very place that he had his apprentice slaughter younglings slaughter children on behalf of his empire. I think that that's terrifying and really cool at the same time. And it just kind of I think that that shows Palpatine's mindset and his kind of grim sense of humor almost uh, in a really cool way. Anyways, that's all that I have. Um I will have a review for Star Wars Visions. Um soon enough, uh, if you want to check out my rankings of each of the episodes, I'd post them on Instagram, at TwinsunTalks, and I'll try to put those up on the website as well. I've gotten bad at updating the website since I've got the streaming service and stuff all set up, but I'll, I'll post a few, of the, a few of the things that I uh, have meant to uh, eventually. I've got some exams coming up this week, so it might not happen until after those are done, but uh, yeah, make sure to follow us on Instagram, at TwinsunTalks. Follow us on streaming platforms. We're available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe to us on YouTube, Twin Sun Talks Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or corrections, email me at um, twinsuntalks at gmail.com. Yeah, that's all that I have. You've taken your first steps into a larger world. May the Force be with you, and I'll see you all in the next episode. Bye, friends. (laughs)